right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tuss. My guest today is Matt Barden. Matt is a couple of things. The purpose of this podcast, he's the founder and CEO of Zinc Learning Labs. Um, but overall, he, he's really kind of an expert on reading and learning and want to talk to him about it from a couple of different perspectives. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. So, so how did you get into the whole education business? Let's start with that. Well, uh, when I graduated from college, I moved to New York City and taught in the public schools for several years. Uh, and from there, I um, became a tutor. So, and, yeah. so public schools, right? Yeah. What grades did you teach? I started out at one of the worst high schools in New York City, Mabel Dean Bacon Vocational High School, teaching ninth and 10th graders, but then I ended up at a middle school. Where is Maybelline? It's gone. Where it, was it? It was actually on right up here on uh, 15th and 2nd Avenue. Uh, oh, right, 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 right. I used to live yeah. over there in Stytown. Um, okay, so you spent a couple of years doing this. Four years, yeah. What's the takeaway? Is it, why isn't it working? <laughs> How long do you have, Bradley? Yeah, let's give this one. Um, I mean, look, honestly, the high-level takeaway for me was I was uh, full of all sorts of ideas about, oh, these kids are like violent felons. And, of course, they're not. They're really nice kids who really most of them, almost all of them, were there to learn and were woefully undereducated and didn't have the kinds of skills that they would need. And it's also very, very hard in a classroom with even – you know, 15 kids, much less 35, to have a big impact, and especially on the kids who are behind. And so uh, what I found in the classroom was that the kids in the front row were doing great, and I was very aware of the kids in the middle row and the back row and how little impact I was having on them. And I even questioned how much good I was doing for the kids in the front row, you know, would it matter if someone else were teaching them or not? Well, I'm, I would imagine the fact that you cared enough to ask the question means you probably were doing them some good. So the, for those who don't really know the New York City school system, the initial thing would be, well, they have huge class sizes because the kids are so poor and the schools are underfunded. But the New York City schools are not underfunded, right? New York City spends more money per pupil than any school district in the country, and yet the outcomes are still pretty bad. Why? Well, um, a lot of what I want to talk to you about, Bradley, is education in general and outcomes in general. And I now work with the children of some of the world's wealthiest people. And, you know, even with all the advantages in the world, many kids are not acing it. Uh, And so learning is not something to take for granted. And I think a lot of it... um, comes down to, uh, well, like I said, a classroom with multiple people, it suddenly becomes much harder to engage everyone and give them what they need. So a lot of it comes down to brain development. Education is just stimulus. Brain development is constant. It's ongoing. It's really dramatic through the first 25 years of life. It's what makes us human. The fact that our brains grow very, very slowly and add capabilities constantly through those first 25 years. So a lot of the problem, I think, is that you know when something's taught, if your brain's not ready to learn it, you don't learn it. And then you're behind, and you feel stupid, and you hate school. And this is actually uh, <clears throat> where reading, uh, I'm convinced, is, is kind of the key missing ingredient. Why? Well, what I discovered when I became a tutor and I really had to deliver results was that um, for most of the kids, they just weren't comprehending very well when they read. So they could read. And, uh, you know, this is where the science of reading stuff is both 
amazing and great and also very frustrating to me in that getting kids to the point where they sound out the words and decode well is really only the first step towards making them successful people in a service economy. And the next step is getting them to turn those sounds that they're now making in their head into meaning, ideas, information, and to even enjoy that process. Right. And but what I discovered is yeah. the kids who did that yeah. had enormous, enormous advantages in school, in life, in everything. Right, but you would, I mean, your work says something like only 13% of Americans sort of can truly read in a way that you think is is. That's not my work. That's the the National Survey of Adult Literacy. So let's even assume that everyone listening to this podcast fits within the 13%. They do. I have to imagine everyone's thinking, though, okay, I learned the sounds. I learned the meaning of the word. I understand what the word means. What's he talking about? (laughs) Right. See, that's really the conundrum here because the people in uh, pretty much all the decision-making roles are in that 13%. And I think what I'm talking about is most uh, accessible for your audience and maybe even for you is if you think about your kids. And whenever I talk to adults about this, it's interesting. I had a call a few years ago with a top scientist and immediately this person starts talking about their 13 year old because they're aware like, oh, my kid isn't really reading. Could this be a problem? And yeah, it could be. Um, and look, many people from a, a literate environment, literate home, are going to become readers at some point. But it might not happen till college or after college, and it might not happen at all. And if it doesn't happen at all, I I wouldn't wait to find out. And when you say readers, you mean they read for enjoyment, or you mean they understand how to make the sounds out of the words? I mean that okay, making the sounds out of the words. That is absolutely step one. So the science of reading folks are 100% correct about that. And there is evidence that kids who don't reach the third grade level in third grade are much more likely to keep falling behind. And that makes perfect sense to me. But my point is that if you reach the third grade level and you can read you know, the Percy Jackson series, that is not preparing you to be an educated person in our society. It's not preparing you to be an uh, independent thinker, a critical thinker reading on a more advanced level does. So the mission of Zinc Learning Labs is reading growth at scale. And we uh, have created a product that can deliver that in a matter of several hours of total time uh, uh, for kids to engage and practice the skills that successful readers do. So when you ask, you know, what is it that's missing? What's missing is I see a lot of kids who are reading. They're sounding out the words. But it's like lights on, nobody home. And, and it happens to all of us, right? Like you've had this experience where you're reading and you go through the paragraph and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, nothing actually landed, right? So what do you do? If you're curious about it, you go back and reread it. I think a lot of times people just are like, oh, forget it. I'm not going to read this because it's too complicated. What I'm interested in is everybody being able to apply themselves and comprehend. Because written language yeah. holds so much of the culture, so much of the um, intelligence of the species. And when people are comprehending on a high level, they're also thinking on a high level. I'm pretty sure that the language structures in writing map pretty well to the brain activity. Language is such a huge part of how we think. Right. So the, the written word 
is done on a much more sophisticated level than speech. So Percy Jackson is the example that you brought up, right? I read that with my kids. It's not, you know, the cat in the hat, right? I mean, there are multiple characters, multiple storylines. You're following mythology, all these different things. So if you can make your way through a Percy Jackson novel and follow the whole thing and understand it, what do you? What skills do you not have that you would say we need to be successful learners and readers? So we break it down into what we call a conscious reading. Conscious reading is zinking and tracking. Zinking, obviously, a word I made up to describe the process of the words turning into images, ideas, meanings, experiences in the brain. So when you're reading Percy Jackson, you're doing that. Most of the language is very sensory. It's very direct. You know. Uh, a lightning bolt hit. It's 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 uh, that's the easiest kind of language mm-hmm. for the brain to process. Yep. What happens is you get more uh, elevated in your reading. Is there's a lot more abstract language. So it's very easy to imagine the lightning bolt. It's a lot harder to understand something like cause and effect relationships. Uh, what is that? Your brain has to take that and make it into something palatable, especially the first time you encounter it. For us, talking about it, we've thought about those ideas. It's already a handle in your brain, right, to understand stuff. But for kids, when they're reading, they mostly don't advance to that level where they're able to take more abstract information and make it palatable for themselves. And then the other thing is that you need to be able to track as you go. So as you're reading, what happens is a lot of kids will do it for a sentence or two, and then something will come up like a pronoun that they don't link back to the antecedent. Like, this led to blah, blah, blah. Right. And if I'm getting too in the weeds here, I no, can't no, stop. No, 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 I, I, think, I think this is good. So, so, okay, so then... So all of that can be trained. Yeah. And kid, you can learn to do that. You and I did it... I don't know why, somehow, automatically. Maybe our parents were pushing us to read. Maybe there was nothing to distract us. A lot of people are very concerned about that. I do think that's a problem, but I also think it's an opportunity because kids are bored out of their minds on TikTok. Right. So um, the New York City school system, just as an example, so what are they not doing or understanding about reading that doesn't take you from the kind of really simple comprehension in a Percy Jackson into something that really allows you to develop, you know, really do, you know, analytical thinking and, and reasoning and all of that. Well, there are, there are a lot of moving pieces here. Uh, an obvious one is that if you give kids things that have no connection to their reality to read, they're going to have a frustrating time with it. Uh, the biggest one for me is I think these skills need to be taught, actively taught, And teachers and adults in general engage with kids need to understand that this is not a given. You know, if you give them a text, even if they know what all the words mean and they know what all the cultural context is, which, by the way, not at all a given, they still need practice and instruction to understand what it is that's supposed to be happening when they read. So finding the right texts, giving them the right text at the right level. Differentiation is a huge part of the problem because, you know, in a classroom with 30 kids, and by the way, the classrooms I taught in had ended up having often 22 kids because so many kids didn't show up for school. I don't right. know how, how much of a problem that is today. But, well, you know, and, even and, in... And only, you know, it's considered a massive improvement, but the graduation rate's still something like 70%, and that's with really low standards. So even then, 30% just aren't. Yeah, so we keep lowering the standards to try to keep kids in the game, which is probably better than flunking them out. But, 
you know, it would be much more successful if we made them succeed. Like get a kid to actually enjoy reading, game on, totally different reality. And so how does Zinc, how does the product that you've built take people from kind of the, a, a form of reading that doesn't really develop the right skills to in a relatively short period of time becoming what you would call a true reader? Well, look, I'm not promising the moon and stars. I think it's a, a start and over a period with the help of teachers and people, adults in these kids' lives, giving them the right things, it will accomplish that. But yeah, what it, how it works is a kid logs on, they're given a level placement to identify where they're at. And we're talking fourth through adulthood reading levels. So it's not a product for little kids. There are a ton of literacy products to teach kids phonics, basically. Um, and even some great products, uh, I'm told, for, for lower school um, reading to get kids more engaged with that. As far as I know, we're the only product really tackling this problem of advanced literacy and reading growth. And the way it works is you get your level, and then you go through a series of level up games. You're presented with a piece of text. We start very easy. A presenter is asking you to interact with the text. What's the easiest word to picture? How do you turn uh, cause and effect? What's a cause? What's an effect? Just guiding you through it, making you actually read it carefully and understand it. Now, link this, ex what, what word explains what the phrase cause and effect means in this case? Drag and drop the phrase cause and effect. And you level up through increasingly difficult passages. And a presenter is guiding you through. It's relatively fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, kids who complete it are, 85% uh, of them are acknowledging that it's made them better at reading. How, how do you know it actually works other than a kid saying that it works? That's a great question. <laughs> it keeps me up at night. But, you know, we have a before and after level placement. A third of them go up a full uh, zinc reading level, which is more than a year's reading growth. And again, several hours spread out over a couple of weeks. So um, that that's pretty convincing. The other thing is, as I said, 85% said it helped them read. 60% said they enjoyed the experience. I see that gap as persuasive. Um, we also hear from teachers. We're in thousands of schools right now. So you know, we hear from the teachers. Now, teachers are assigning it. They don't necessarily know what it is. It's not their top priority. But the ones who do are like, wow, we've never seen reading growth like this. And, and, and so who's, who's the, is the customer school systems or could it be individual parents? How do you think about it from a business perspective? Well, that's what you and I are talking about. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's a real dilemma because our mission is reading growth at scale. And um, selling to K-12 schools is notoriously difficult. And that's tough, certainly been our business. experience. Yeah. Um, we have a partnership with the College Board, uh, Springboard ELA curriculum. So we're in thousands of schools. So we have a ton of users. Um, and um, selling to parents seems to be the conventional wisdom. There are some real obstacles to that. But uh, like what? Well, I think parents, uh, if we really niche targeted to middle schoolers, I think that might be a better way to go than um, targeting to the whole range. Because I'm not sure as a parent, like if you have a kid in high school, are you going to buy them this product and get them to do it? What do you think? Um, if they truly, what I've learned with my kids is if they truly don't want to do something, it very rarely happens. Right. They have to be motivated to want to do it. And the motivation could be because 
Um, they actually are interested in it because they don't want to get in trouble because they want to make somebody happy. They have yeah. there's some external reward that they want for it, whatever it is. It's not always just because they're intrinsically a, a love of learning, but they've got to want to do it in some way. But okay, but if you took kids just in grades six, seven, and eight, still a lot of kids, right? How many millions of kids are we we're talking about? Right, so, so, probably 50, 60 million kids in America. Right. So, like, it, oh, it, no, that's way lots of, too much. Yeah, lots of total, but it, it's still, right, it's still a chunk of that. So, is do you envision more that um, parents use this as a supplemental tool to what their kids are getting in school, or you're selling to the schools, they're offering to the parents, and then from there, you're exposing the parents and can then sort of upsell from a business standpoint? Uh, I think it could potentially work either way. Look, I need help. I'm, I'm trying to find the right people to help me figure this out. I right. think I can raise the money. I need flesh and blood to fight by my side. I need people who have expertise who, who are going to help think these questions through and you know figure it out because I don't think this can wait. I don't think this is a, you know, and again, the conversation we were having is about, I think that the thing you just raised about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, that's the heart of the matter. Right. Like we got to get this to be intrinsic. The reading experience like you and I love to read. Yep. Well, why is that? I would say because we can. And if uh, we make that a reality for kids, it's probably got to happen through school as a business model. I think it's probably got to also happen through parents. So uh, it could be something where we incentivize parents and we say, OK, you've paid for this service. If you get your school to buy it, now your account is free. Right. right. It's, it's interesting. So there's sort of two kinds of, of entrepreneurs that I've sort of come across in my time in, in venture. And one is the, you know, they go to Stanford Business School and they really love just sort of the idea of building a company and being a founder. So they just find an area where they're like, hey, there's a hole in the market here. Right. I'm going to build something. Right. right. And that may work. It may not work. But that's and then the other one would be someone who does whatever the actual thing is for a living and says, holy shit, well, what if we did it this way? Um, and then they have to figure out, you know, how is it that I go about taking this idea I have into the first step of what you do is you built a company and technology around it, and then how do you scale it where it becomes from a kind of regular bootstrap business to, uh, you know, a high-growth technology company and that's where, and, and it's it's tricky, right? Because a lot of ways, I think a lot of VCs are biased against the second group. Right. Because it feels like, oh, if we're betting on the Harvard MBA, the Stanford MBA, whatever it they is. They probably know what they're doing. They must know what they're doing. It's a safe bet. Whereas, Matt, you're, you're not 25, right? You're an adult. You've never built a technology company before Zinc Learning Labs, even though you've built a really successful tutoring business, um, <coughs> which I would argue, you know, either... Uh, you know how to make money or you don't. I mean, it, until I went to VC, I wasn't a professional investor either. And I found myself oftentimes, excuse me, in meetings being a little deferential because I'm like, well, what do I know about the CapEx and the, the, <laughs> the operating margin versus the net margin and the you know, multiple invested capital and all that stuff? And I was like, wait, I've built businesses that make lots of money, right? Isn't that sort of ultimately the point here? And meaning I tend to be more biased towards the latter because right. maybe that reflects my own life experience to a certain extent. So, but just because there are lots of, of you know, want to be entrepreneurs listen to this podcast, mm. how do you go from idea to you're a successful but sort of traditional business person to the next step? Yeah, I mean, this is what I think about 24-7. You know, I actually was in a 
successful, I'm making air quotes, tech startup before this with a business partner who was from that background. Mm -hmm. And so I speak the tech language. Uh, you know, I'm friends with, uh, I met him through a VC, a big VC in New York, Brad Burnham. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I understand that these people, like, and then he went on and he did, he's on his third, fourth startup. He's had several exits. And it's just a technologist looking and saying, how can we disrupt this? Yeah. And the whole time he was saying to me, Matt, we should be working in education. We were building apps for the app store and we made a random smattering of them. Um, and um, so uh, what was the question again? So the question, how do we the transition is, into... Yeah, how do you go from... I mean, you, you have a services business that tutors really, really rich kids in New York, charges parents a ton of money because there's a huge amount of elasticity when it comes to it's, it's worldwide. It's right. not in New York. Or, okay, got yeah. it. So, and, yeah. and makes a lot of money on a sort of EBITDA annual basis. Now we're talking about building a technology product that can be scalable and ultimately have, you know, nine to ten figures a year in revenue. Right. Um, how are you trying to get from point A to point B? Um, I am talking to you. I'm talking to yeah. a lot of other people. I'm, I, I get emails every day from private equity firms, mm -hmm. and so I'm engaging with some of those. But I really feel like it has to come from me and, and possibly finding the right partner. You know, if I found the right person who was uh, who brought the uh, opposite skill set, um, that would be really exciting. But I'm constantly just putting it out there is what I'm doing right now. And I also think um, it's a very ambitious project um, and it's exciting, you know, so. Well, and, um, and should it work pretty fucking meaningful? I would think so. And I feel like there's so many people out there who, who say they want to do something like that. They'd much rather get involved in something that already has product market fit, which this kind of does in certain ways, but not in the ways that would be meaningful to a VC. Yeah, and, and EdTech, as, as you and I have discussed, is scary because EdTech, 90% of the time, really just means GovTech, right? It means selling to K-12 through public school districts for whom what I've learned in my own career in politics and business is the smallest school district in the country is just as bureaucratic and just as political as the biggest. If I not, can confirm that. Not more yeah. so, right? I remember when I was deputy governor of Illinois, we had something like 775 school districts in one state. And I just wanted to consult. I knew trying to actually consolidate the districts was a lost cause. I'm like, what if we just share like the back office services just so that we aren't duplicating every single cost, you know, every accounting, every finance, every school bus logistics, everything else. I mean, a massive rev revolt just to do that because the bureaucrats in charge want to keep their little fiefdoms, right? So as a result, uh, you're, it's challenging when someone's an ed tech entrepreneur because the minute the VCs like me hear, you know, K through 12 procurement, like, fuck this. this. <laughs> so that's, I think, part of the challenge. And hey, Mario Brothers topped a billion dollars, I saw this, I know, this morning. It's the, terrible. The, the movie, it, it's a billion. You know, it doesn't necessarily make sense what uh, gets funded, what can make money. Um, but this can. Yeah. It, it definitely can. There's got to be a way to do it. And, uh, you know, here we are sitting in your bookstore and people who have money can invest their money in whatever they want. You right. Know? Well, I would and recommend if, if you're looking to invest your money that doesn't lose money, bookstores are probably, in my experience now, not the way to go. Uh, <laughs> I knew that I knew that was going to happen. But um, so I, I know that the tutoring side of your, your world, you talk about a little less in part because people expect a lot of discretion when they hire, you know, your tutors that work for you around the world. Um, so obviously we're not going to name names, but but they are, as you said, 
the richest people, basically, right? Um, and, and and so I guess the first question is, when you start tutoring a kid that goes to Dalton or whatever, I'll just use New York City, all of those examples all over the world, right? Um, are they already in that 13%? Well, uh, some of them are. You know, for some of them, there, there are other aspects to the test prep component and to helping them become fuller human beings so that they're more palatable to the increasingly competitive universities. You know, we don't use some trick. It's insane, the kind of stuff that people do and the... the um, attempts to subvert what has been more and more a meritocratic system. Um, we don't do that. Uh, some of them are, are strong readers, but they don't speak math. Um, a lot of them don't think that clearly to be able to achieve a near-perfect test score, which is what we need them to do now. Um, but many of them are not in that 13%. Many of them are you know, well below that. And they're somehow functioning in school through like intense, intense effort. You know, some of them are not. Some of them are floundering in school. Yeah. Um, but there's a um, stereotype of a spoiled rich kid that I don't see that much. I see a lot more kids who are like working super hard to earn their privilege and uh, feeling really insecure because they're not comprehending that well. Right. And so if I turn them into successful readers, school becomes much easier, they become much more interesting as people, and uh, they increase their chances of, of getting in. Now, I know but, what your yeah, next question is. Yeah. Is the Dalton School failing them? No, actually, uh, okay. my, my next question was really more a question that arguably, if you answered it honestly, might undermine your entire business model. But, um, you know, I have kids that go to fancy Manhattan private schools, including a daughter in the 11th grade who's, you know, going taking the SATs in four weeks. Um, and... Uh, you know, she has a tutor and all that stuff. But but one thing we talk about a lot in this podcast is, like, what are the skills that actually make up true nonlinear success, right? And I think the view that we have here is if your goal is to succeed in a very laddered conventional industry like investment banking or management consulting or being a partner in a law firm, then it probably does matter a lot your academic pedigree, your test scores, the perception that you must have a very high IQ, all of that. For everything else that's nonlinear and requires some level of creativity and grit and entrepreneurial skills and everything else, it, from what I've learned from my own career, people I've worked with across lots of different industries, it's not academic pedigree, right? It's hustle, it's street smarts, it's work ethic, it's character, it's risk tolerance, it's ability to sell, it's ability to communicate. Um, most of which are not skills that are taught at sort of Ivy League institutions um, because they're really more breeding you to become a partner at McKinsey or Wachtell or Goldman or whatever it is. So I understand that you can only charge the money you charge because the parents believe that it's critical that their kid go get into Princeton as opposed to just go into the number 87th ranked school, whatever it is. Does it really matter? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we talked about this before, yeah. and I, I, I definitely agree with you. I, I'm not sure how much it matters, and I'm skeptical for a lot of kids about some of these top schools because of the kind of hothouse environment. Yeah. But um, I have a simple answer for you, and what we do is uh, love-based learning, and the competencies that we're teaching kids are uh, learn, love, effort, attention, reading, and numbers. Those are actually skills. So what I mean by that is the fundamental thing is love. It's ability to connect yourself to something that matters to you and that you have an intrinsic 
value in, whether that's you know competing in a sport or a business or becoming a you know neuroscientist or something. And to me, that's the thing that, uh, and you, you make assumptions about my customers that aren't necessarily accurate. I think a lot of them uh, are paying for our services because they know we'll actually deliver that and that's mm -hmm. meaningful for their kid. I'm convinced it's also the best way to you know, open up more opportunities in terms of colleges. Um, and we legitimately, I was meeting with a family last night and talking, and this kid is a top student, blah, 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 you know, talking about all the different options. It's not the same thing whether you go to, you know, Brown or Harvard or Ohio State. Um, so, you know, I understand the backlash against these top tier universities and sure. how selective they are, but they definitely have things to offer. Um, and so I am... The, the families that are most successful with us are the ones who are like, yeah, this is going to really help my kid, and it and does. So how does it help? Okay, so it's interesting. So I'm first-generation American, right? It was really important to my family that I go to an Ivy League college because that was the pathway in their mind into being successful in America, right? And I did, and I, even though I don't actually can't really tie a lot of what I've achieved back to that, nonetheless, I get the mentality that I grew up with. Right. But then now, you know, if and if, it was very fear based and a lot of pressure. And I yeah. would argue that's detrimental. Right. OK. And I would say that what you're reacting to when you talk about your kids is the kind of hothouse pressure cooker awfulness yep. that is going on in some of these top tier prep schools. Um, and, you know, as a parent, as a tutor, our job is to uh, try to jump our kids out of that narrative and into something that's more grounded in who they are. And right. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I was trying to get to, which is so, okay, so you're a parent and you're saying, look, I just want my kid to be safe and healthy and happy and I love my kid. And part of that is through their education and their learning process. What are the skills, whether they're hiring you guys or just, you know, in general, that they should be focused on that are for the development of their kid as a person as opposed to their kid as an application? So the, the one I really didn't want to muddy the water, this is the problem with being Matt Bardeen. Um, the, the, the one cornerstone thing is love. And by love, I don't mean they have to be find their passion, blah, blah, blah. I just mean identify within yourself your own intrinsic drive. And love gets a bad rap. It's usually most people think fear is the only real motivator. That's ridiculous. We're a prosperous society. You're a very successful guy. You don't want your kids to succeed because they're driven and they're terrified of failure. You, you've given them all these opportunities, but that doesn't mean you want them to sit on the beach with a cocktail for all right. their lives. Well, they would not so, be fulfilled or happy if exactly. they Exactly. So to me, it's the love and effort combination. It's figuring out how to engage yourself not out of fear. And this is very contrary to what tends to go on in school and even at some of these top-tier institutions, but the people who are really getting the most out of all of that are the people who are love-based, who understand like, oh, I'm going to this school and I really, this teacher is amazing. They're blowing my mind. So I'm going to read more into this. I'm going to learn more. I'm, gonna, I'm excited about this, that, and the other thing. It's not always school related, right? But that they learn to connect themselves and their energies to meaningful efforts that, you know, they can do that. Like for me, it's education. Right. And the questions we're talking about, about entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's somewhat that, too. 
right? But no, I'm not an MBA from Stanford with a tech background and whatever, you know? So uh, this is more of a New York City question, but it kind of gets into it, which is, you know, you, you talk about fear not being the right motivator. Uh, we've been involved politically in the efforts to preserve the test that is used to get into the super elite public high schools like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Brooklyn Prep and whatever yep. else. Uh, Special Science yeah. High Schools. Um, the argument against the test is it tends to be, the, it's, it's a pure for the listeners, just you know, either you score above it or you're below it. If you score above it, you're in. If you get below and nothing else matters, right? The demographics as a result tend to be extremely white and Asian, especially Asian these days, as opposed to black or Latino. And on one hand, the argument is the kids who are succeeding probably are in a fear-based culture um, in taking the test, which we would argue is not a great way to learn or to live. On the other hand, you mentioned earlier sort of efforts to kind of undermine the meritocracy of education. Getting rid of the test would certainly be one of those efforts. So how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, um, I taught a class uh, a decade ago at um, Queens High School Science, and they randomly brought us in. And they, they realized that they're not a single kid from their own uh, district had gotten into the specialized science high schools. And so they, the principal wanted to do something about that. I had 30 kids show up. 17 of them got into Stuy. Two of them got into Stuy. Like uh, eight of them got into Bronx Science and another eight or so to Brooklyn Tech. Um, so it's doable without those cram schools and all that. And I also think it does a, those kids a disservice. So I'm giving you more of a nuanced answer than yeah. you want to hear. But, but um, No, but your answer is... You can teach any kid, or the vast majority of kids, to be able to learn in a way that allows them to succeed on these tests. I, that I don't think those tests are even a, that hard. A, a fear-based mentality. Yeah, I think yeah. if okay. a kid is sense. going in, like the key ingredient in any human endeavor is love. It's your own, the energy that comes from you. That's what you bring. And if you're in a cram school for years and you panic on the test, you're not going to do it. And also, like the products, and you, you know, you said I don't know where you went to college, but I went to oh, Ivy. Yeah. And and you know, there's this sense of like, oh, you're the elite of the elite, and you and I know that's bullshit, right. you know. And like, that's not going to make you. I mean, it might get you a job at a private equity firm or whatever, but that and two seventy five will move you anywhere on the anywhere on the New York City subway system. Yeah. And what matters in life is your engagement and your doing stuff. So to me, that I, I don't think we get rid of the tests. Right. I think the tests are an important measure. If anything, I'd like them to be harder because I find that with a lot of my SAT and ACT students, like I get them to like a perfect score, but I want them to be much more switched on and readers and thinkers than you know the test measures. Like right. I think they can go well beyond that. I'd like to see you know, more opportunities for that. It's not a meritocracy based on that because you and I had enormous advantages. I don't know about your immigrant parents or whatever, but mine were, the house was full of books. Yeah. Right? Same. So yeah. there are cultural advantages for certain people, uh, not so much for first-generation Asian immigrants, you know, who are, who are somehow getting it done, but that should be more accessible to everyone. Yeah. It's, it's interesting where, and I guess this is in some ways very much a position of privilege to even think about this stuff, but the how do you navigate um, success, happiness, 
fulfillment purpose in a way that doesn't lead you down the wrong road where either you're sitting on the beach with a cocktail because you never have to do anything, you're unhappy, you're a partner at Wachtell, you were told that that, that nirvana, I mean, I had this problem, yeah, I teach at Columbia Business School, after all my ranting, here I am teaching in school. Um, but I sort of tell my students, like, look, the belief that they want you to have here is that once you achieve something, right, your partner, your private equity fund, or whatever it is, your life is just blissful from there on out, and that's just not true, right? It's not. Yeah, I, I know. It's shocking. It's shocking. Um, so, so the conventional wisdom of success in some ways doesn't necessarily lead you down the right path, but at the same time... Well, it should. Not. Right. So I it think should. that's I mean, I'm what capital is trying to do. You know, I don't think it's like communism. Everybody, you know, that doesn't work. It's, it, it doesn't work for various structural reasons. But I think we're evolving as a society to a point where, you know, I mean, whatever, this gets too philosophical. But yeah. if we have universal basic income, which we may need to have within the next 25 I years. I believe we should. Um, then what are you supposed to do? You know, and it it's gonna yeah. have to Although be love based. You, yeah, I think that's right. Although you again, this you're right. We're gonna talk, but UBI, at least from my perspective, would be more of just a more cost effective replacement for current government programs that provide aid to people, uh, having like negotiated state budgets for years and whatever else. I know that when a dollar comes in from your taxes, you know. 50 cents at best actually goes to helping anybody and 50 cents gets wasted in process and bureaucracy and corruption and everything else and UBI from my perspective is just a way to keep it closer to a dollar by just avoiding government entirely um, yeah so I don't think we in, in my view at least ever have a world where people aren't working now maybe AI and all of that does change that to a certain extent um, although you know they were talking about Sort of a twenty-hour work week, uh, you know, hundred, two hundred years ago, the Coupeurier developed developing these cities and all that, and that never really right. But that's that, all so. based on fear. Like, why do you want to? Do you want to work twenty hours a week and not do anything? The no, other? look, I work. I, look, I work less than I used to, but I still probably work at least sixty hours a week. I don't have to work at all, um, but I would be bored out of my fucking mind. Exactly, and wouldn't be achieving anything that I felt good about if I wasn't working. Right, and all I would say to you, Mr. Bradley Tusk. Mm -hmm is like you're pretty much a love-based guy. Here we are sitting in your bookstore and you feel badly that it doesn't make more money, but it's just like, it's great. It's really yeah. cool. And like you're doing things in your community and you're contributing. And like, yeah. that's, that's the, 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 that to the, me the is as good as it gets. certainly outweighs the money that I could, the things I could buy with the money instead if I didn't lose it on the bookstore. For exactly. Sure. All right, how do people find you and, and find Zinc? Uh, it's um, Matt at ZincLearningLabs.com. ZincLearningLabs.com is our website. It's also our Twitter and Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah. Cool. Matt Pardine, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.